Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Okay, well, let us reward the people who were prompt and the many thousands of people who will view this after we've done this program. But I am Steve Orleans, president of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm thrilled, absolutely thrilled to be joined by Kai Fu Li, my old friend. Um, and I'm even more thrilled to have read this extraordinary book, AI, 10 Visions for Our Future, 2041 which Kai Fu and Chen Chou Fan have written and recently translated into English. One of the great things about my job is I get to read books by friends and colleagues. And this one was really a pleasure. I More than a pleasure. It was absolutely enthralling. Um, more, you know, at the National Committee, what we often try to do is find ways to educate people. And what I'm frequently telling uh, my colleagues, Chinese officials, American officials, is you educate through story, that you tell a story that delivers a message, and then you explain the message, that it's really a terrific political technique on how to educate. And what Kai Fu has done with this book is, is and with uh, Mr. Chun, who wrote the fiction part of it, and Kai Fu wrote the nonfiction part of it, is tells these absolutely compelling science, science fiction stories related to AI. And then Kai Fu explains, is this realistic? Is this not realistic? Um, how does it work? It, it's, you know, I loved AI superpowers, his former book, his, his, late, his last book, which was on the New York bestseller, the New York Times bestsellers list. Uh, but this one is really compelling. If anyone on this has not read it yet, read it. It is truly a wonderful experience. One which for me, who doesn't know much about AI, it really educated me about AI and what we should think about looking into the future. So I've always been an admirer of Kai Fu now even more so, even more so. I won't go over, you know, he's currently, we won't go over his bio because we talked about all the awards and all the things that he has done. We wouldn't have time uh, for the program, but he is the CEO of Sinovation Ventures. Um, and as everybody knows his story from AI uh, superpowers, started out at Carnegie Mellon, was at Google, Microsoft, other companies, and then started Sinovate, which invests in startup companies. So Kai Fu, um, I've given a big pitch for the book. This is, this is the cover. Um, tell, I mean, it was so imaginative. How did you come up with the idea of kind of combining fiction with AI analysis? Uh, well, thank, thank you, Steve, uh, for, for having me on this uh, uh, webinar. Uh, the idea is that I, I believe is incredibly important for everyone to understand what AI is and is capable of and its potential dangers and how to fix them. And, and yet many people find AI intimidating because it seems like it's a rocket science, but, but it really isn't. So I try to explain it in plain language in AI superpowers. I think I had some limited success and people told me they, they thought they understood some of AI actually with me explaining it uh, in a nonfiction, uh, but then still people were intimidated. So I thought, uh, well, the only way to get people to truly understand AI is through uh, entertaining and engaging a storytelling, which I personally cannot do. So I uh, reached out to my friend, um, uh, Chen Chufan, also known as Stanley Chen, uh, to ask if he would write the stories. And, and he uh, kindly agreed. Uh, it is uh, rather uh, uh, unusual that a science fiction writer who's used to uh, let the imagination run wild uh, was willing to constrain his imagination to what I paint as feasible 
uh, and unfeasible and only write about what's feasible in the next 20 years. But he's done an amazing job and hopefully the book uh, delivers the engaging uh, aspect and draws people in who otherwise might find AI to be intimidating and, and who might have been misinformed about AI who can now get hopefully the right picture. And after each story, uh, I give an explanation of the technology, what it can and cannot do, the problems it might introduce on society and how we might deal with it. So that's how it came about. And how did you arrive at the 10 stories and you know the different kind of aspects of AI? That must've been difficult because you could think about 5,000. Yeah, it, it, was, um, it was a puzzle. We're putting together a puzzle. I wanted about 20 technologies covered from natural language processing to quantum computing um, to uh, uh, drug discovery. I wanted about 20 technologies covered and I wanted to see them covered from easy to hard. And I wanted to see them covered applied to different industries like um, entertainment, uh, communications, healthcare um, and uh, work, uh, uh, et cetera. So, so that was my puzzle. And then Stanley introduced another puzzle. He wanted to uh, have 10 stories take place in 10 different parts of the world, uh, partly to make the stories more interesting and partly to show that this will impact all countries and all industries. So we mixed these four puzzles together and then we brainstormed possible uh, storylines and then, um, uh, and then he went off and, and wrote the stories and then I wrote the commentary. That's how the puzzle came together. We didn't quite cover every technology. There were a few we least. wish we could get in, but <laughs> the puzzle just didn't, didn't fit. Now, because we're the National Committee on US-China Relations um, and our audience are basically people who are looking at the US-China Relationship, what is the book what is the message the book conveys about U.S.-China relations? Uh, this book isn't in particular about U.S.-China, but it paints a world in which we really need to work closely together um, under more, not less, globalism with more, not less, trust between countries because our fates is uh, very linked. Uh, for example, uh, autonomous weapons can only be uh, regulated with uh, cooperation from countries. Uh, and uh, many of the governance ideas uh, can, can become universal if people come to a common understanding. Uh, and, um, and also uh, technology advances were driven by China and US and the, the scientists ought to work together. Fortunately, they still do. So those are some things one could read through the stories. Um, and, and also uh, in some of the background, it is clearly still portraying that technologies coming from US and China are the two most significant technology superpowers that will continue in 20 years. So these are the subtle aspects one could find in the book, but it's really not prominent. Which areas should the United States and China with respect to AI be cooperating? Which ones should cooperation be limited? And which ones can we really not cooperate on? I mean, I hear discussions in Washington that quantum computing is just, we should not really be cooperating in that because it can be, there's too many, uh, there's too much military applicability there. So how do you kind of divide those areas? Right, um, I, I think, AI as a general omni-use technology, deep learning extensions, uh, in, including uh, some of the more recent advances beyond deep learning are pretty universal. They, the, the, the papers are published even with uh, source code and data. And the, the Chinese, European, American scientists are already working together. And then the technologies are already applied to industries. So, um, so I think that is uh, the, the horse has left the barn and, and it's becoming omni-use applied to industries. Uh, more cooperation, I think, I think would be very suitable. Uh, there are obviously uh, civilian and non-civilian applications, but the cooperation on civilian, which is a much larger part, I think can and should go on. Uh, specifically, 
the use of AI in climate, in uh, healthcare, ought to be less controversial, and potentially uh, the use for uh, profit making for 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 use in financial industries and other industries, I think, could also span multiple countries. Uh, I think uh, both countries will assert that uh, um, technologies that relate to national um, security or defense, that's an area where this, each country should develop its own. And probably, uh, you know, Europe and Russia will also want to develop their own. And um, I think um, uh, autonomous weapons, the development of that um, should either be, should I think will happen independently, but they should be regulated working together. And I think quantum computing, I can see the logic of why having a quantum supremacy is important to many countries. And um, uh, be because I think quantum computing uh, basically changes the paradigm of computing and makes possible uh, things like breaking computer security, figuring out uh, extremely fast communications, uh, completely disrupting the type of every algorithm from AI and, 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 and so on. So I, I think I can see uh, countries wanting to be uh, superior in quantum and, and it's not a technology that I think people are inclined to work together with other companies. Companies are doing it. Um, and I think each company and probably each country views it as an expensive endeavor that would give it an advantage in a disruptive future direction. So I think I, I would understand, understand that one. Uh, and there are probably other, uh, basically the question I think is, if it's really legitimately related to national defense uh, and security, I think it's understandable that cooperation be limited. Everything else, I would hope for more cooperation. Aren't we seeing both governments, if I agree with you, I'm 100% in agreement with you, we should find ways to, co to cooperate, but aren't we seeing both governments actually move in the opposite direction, more restrictions on data, blocking of uh, Chinese acquisitions of companies in the United States that have access or are a, a, a bank for healthcare data, for individuals data, uh, dating apps, um, you know, obviously the, the uh, you know, DD, you know, having certain data and that actually the walls rather than getting lower, are getting higher. What I've always argued for is defining national security narrowly and building those walls very high, but for the other things don't have walls at all. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, I think if we trace back on how this began, I think it was under President Trump that went after a number of these aspects. Uh, I, I don't want, I don't, I'm not an expert on which of the policies are legitimate, which is our questionable. But I think uh, China's, I think the Chinese government's preference would have been to continue globalism. China clearly has been a beneficiary and can now contribute. But I think seeing some of these um, uh, companies that have been put on entities lists with uh, export control, CFIUS, and the um, frequency and the degree of the uh, application of these um, um, uh, measures are making China feel that it needs to be self-sufficient in technologies. Otherwise, um, every company could follow the path of Huawei of being uh, limited in its access to necessary uh, infrastructural technologies. So yes, in recently China has been uh, extending its regulation too. It, it is kind of a uh, symmetrical escalation, which is unfortunate, and I hope there will be some de-escalation. Otherwise, this will probably get worse, not better. Yeah. The National Committee runs what are called uh, Track 2 Dialogues, and one of them is actually on the digital economy. And mm. our hope is to be able to propose to both governments some rules of the road where we don't have this continuing uh, expansion of restrictions, because ultimately these expansions of restrictions take the dream of AI and the good things that it can do, and it impedes the realization 
of that dream. You know, I know the mm. book's not about U.S.-China relations, but the chapter, it was interesting, the chapter on um, a quantum genocide, which was, mm -hmm. you know, riveting. I mean, I, I was late for an appointment because I was reading, <laughs> it was the fiction part, not the analytical part. But it's about, it's, it's about rogue actors. And is it fair to say the greatest threat of the misuse of AI is actually not from state actors, but from rogue non-state actors? Uh, I, it's hard to say which is, is larger, but uh, yeah, I would, I would tend to agree uh, because that's the difference with, let's say, nuclear weapons. While that's incredibly uh, dangerous, it is only a few countries that have it and they can hopefully negotiate treaties and regulations and, and control themselves and uh, due to deterrence and uh, uh, some degree of trust, et cetera. Uh, because states, I think, generally speaking, are, are much more uh, trustworthy than, than non-state actors. So the big danger for autonomous weapons is that the cost of building one can be very low, like $1,000 uh, equip, equipping a, um, a drone with facial recognition and uh, GPS and, uh, and, and a little bit of dynamite, then it becomes an assassination machine that flies at very fast speed, very small, very difficult to catch and shoots someone uh, point blank. And, and the other danger is that the terrorists uh, do not have to sacrifice their lives unlike the, uh, the, the suicide bombers uh, who do. So this lowers the barrier, the cost is lower and also one could a terrorist group can send a swarm of these. So, so I, I think that lowers the cost of terrorism and increases their uh, uh, lethality. So I, I, I do think it is much more dangerous. And in fact, I'm a, uh, I, think, I think any day now, we're going to see some such activities and uh, people are in, uh, countries are actually generally not taking this seriously enough. And it's gonna take another autonomous weapon terrorist group 911-like event that I think will wake everyone up. Yeah. How realistic, by the way, is, is the quantum genocide kind of fiction part, you know, where this effectively a mad scientist, you know, whose life has been ruined, you know, kind of takes over? Uh, I, I think it's higher than ever before. Because you know, with Unabomber, it's a, the 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 characters was built on Unabomber, but Unabomber is um, deranged, but and and smart, but but not a deep scientist. So 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 nowadays, uh, many more people have access to these AI technologies and the drone technologies and and can program them. Uh, so I think that is more realistic than ever, more dangerous than ever. Uh, the part about that that. Um, character uh, becoming the first person to invent a quantum computer and uses the quantum computer to do bad things, that's much more speculative. Uh, obviously, uh, it's really the national laboratories and the IBMs and Googles that really are likely to make the big break in quantum. And, uh, and, and, and those large companies and large national laboratories are not very likely to have such a, a deranged person at the top. Yeah. You know, um, I think it was Trump used to joke. He said, "We don't know if this is a state or a fat guy sitting in the in the basement who's hacking into stuff and trying to do all this." So, so the question, you know, how do you need states to be behind this, or is it possible for kind of literally the mad scientist to, you know, use AI to accomplish very nefarious? Um, objectives? I, I think the math scientists can do it and depends on what bad things are being done. If it's really to build a small number of killer drones or slaughter bots, I think even, a, even an advanced hobbyist could build that. Don't you really need a deep scientist? So, so that's why I think the danger is becoming greater and greater because the barrier to building AI um, is lower and lower. More and more people uh, every year uh, can program AI and do good things and also do bad things. Yeah. 
you know, it was interesting. As I was reading the book, um, you know, there were two major incidents involving AI. Uh, one was um, the alleged assassination by Israel uh, mm. of the leading <clears throat> nuclear scientist, the person trying to create a nuclear weapon in Iran, who apparently yeah. a, uh, a machine gun was placed, which was operated fully by AI. And the other was the sad uh, action by the United States to have a drone strike on a car where the intelligence apparently was faulty. What are those, are we very close to, to kind of what, you know, you say 2041, but is it, this is 2021. Sounds like yes. we're getting pretty close. I think we're pretty close. There's also, I think, an attempted assassination on the uh, Venezuelan uh, president and also the uh, alleged strike on the Saudi oil fields by uh, uh, Iran. Uh, and all of those um, have drones playing a role. There are two types of drones. Uh, in most of these cases, uh, uh, a very sturdy uh, military-grade drones were used, and those are very high, high expensive and still out of reach by terrorists because they're not acquirable commercially. But I think the Venezuelan president assassination, I think that was using more of a standard hobbyist drone. I, I, I'm not certain, but, um, but, but those can be uh, equally lethal uh, today. So I, I do think in the next three years, we will see uh, these killer drones uh, do something terrible and, uh, and then we'll wake up and start reading <laughs> all these uh, papers that various people wrote. Uh, the part, uh, my book, uh, Autonomous Weapon, the section was excerpted and, and, and published in the uh, Atlantic. Uh, and there are other people who have written, uh, a thousand, uh, several thousand AI scientists, uh, along with the late Stephen Hawking, Elon Musk, have written a, a plea that, that governments should look at the uh, regulation or perhaps banning of autonomous weapons. But it's all fallen on deaf ears. And, mm -hmm. And I'm afraid it's going to take a, a terrible uh, um, atrocity that will uh, wake people up. What, what is the widespread use of 5G going to affect this? Uh, certainly, uh, communications is uh, a, an important element for any um, misuse of AI technologies. Um, or positive. Right. Uh, yeah, of course, positive and negative. Uh, the, the drones wouldn't be able to operate if they uh, couldn't use the GPS element, for example, and the 5G. Uh, but that's already, I think, a, um, uh, a reality. It is the way it is. Yeah, so, uh, and I think going on to 6G, uh, it will even enable other types of things. Um. I saw an, when I was watching a demonstration of 5G, um, I was in Shanghai and they, they showed um, a mechanical arm mining rare earths, I think in Guizhou or something, something where um, years ago, um, miners would have died. Now it's just a machine and they can live, and they obviously, you know, it's a thousand miles, 1500 kilometers, and they could sit there and the 5G was so perfect that they could mine and operate accordingly. I mean, isn't, and that's obviously all AI and a combination of AI and 5G. It was, it was one of the most, you know, it really brought home to me the lives that could be saved by AI. Uh, yeah, absolutely. In uh, dangerous situations, in mines or uh, accidents or fires, uh, robotic technologies can be life-saving. And the way uh, robotic technologies are likely to de de developed is first in uh, extreme conditions where people are willing to pay a very high price, such as these, uh, and then moving into the factories. And then within factories, there will be uh, smart forklifts, smart uh, autonomous vehicles, smart arms that can grasp any object, and then that will be refined by use at a high price uh, paid by the manufacturing companies to basically 
re replace routine work by people, and then the technology will become cheaper than adopted in the com in commercial in commercial applications like restaurants and malls, and then it will come to our homes and become great uh, household um, helpers. So so that's something we can look at a 20 year horizon and, and see pretty much all of the routine human labor will be doable by, um, by robots. And I think that will be one of the uh, big advances and it will free up a lot of our time. So the, the that positive benefits are, are definitely much larger. Yeah. Now in the holy driver, um, you know, you talk about, you know, autonomous vehicles and, and you know, the use of AI and it's this, I mean, I don't want to ruin the ending, you know, how, how lives could be saved this way. But you also then in the analytical part, you talk about uh, are people, will the regulatory apparatus be willing to deal with um, the general savings of lives? So you will have, the data will show we save lives, but there will be an instance or two or five or 10 where someone dies as a result. How does that get resolved? Is, and is that something where China is able to look at the broader data, whereas democracies can't? It's possible. Um, yeah, the specific issue that Steve, you were talking about is AI gets better with data. So if you allow an autonomous vehicle to launch, uh, it will certainly make mistakes, but maybe we don't allow it to launch unless it drives roughly as well as people, maybe a little better. I think that is feasible. Then it will gather more data. And then in another month, a new software will be sent to all the vehicles and then it will drive better, uh, much better than people. And, and then in um, a year, five years, 10 years, uh, it will become so much better at, at driving than people because it's seen you know, billions of miles and no human has ever seen that. Uh, and it's, it's uh, honed to a perfect driving capability. Also the autonomous vehicles can talk to each other and just miss each other by an inch and humans cannot have that precision. And also a autonomous vehicle that might be having trouble like a blown tire can broadcast to nearby cars to stay away from me. And humans can't respond in that kind of a split second um, uh, accident or issue. So uh, it's very clear that uh, in, let's say, given 10 years from launch to 10 years, autonomous vehicles ought to save 90% of the lives lost on the road today. This is, this is a uh, scientifically estimated projection by McKinsey. So the question is, what if we launch it and it's um, yet many people die because of it? Uh, not more people die than human drivers. Are we willing to say, we'll launch the product when it's as good as human uh, and the autonomous vehicle will make mistakes. Uh, there will be people who get hit and who die, uh, not worse than people, but different people. And then over time, it gets better. Is, is that a price we're willing to pay? So I think different people and different governments will feel differently and, and we'll see how that plays out but uh, I would bet many countries, uh, perhaps including China, would feel at a 10-year horizon, that's a good thing. And at no given moment in time, is it worse than people? Then it's something we could look into. One could also extrapolate on robotic surgeries, on doctors who diagnose patients. Uh, similar issues with human lives will be involved. So, so I think we should go in with our eyes open and have the intellectual debate now. AI is going to make fewer mistakes. An AI radiologist is going to make fewer mistakes than the best radiologist in the world. Because the best radiologist, maybe he's seen 100,000, but the AI has seen 100 million. Right. So they will simply make fewer mistakes. So, and so no one should suffer from that transition to well, AI I, radiology. I, I don't know, I don't know, because the problem is when AI makes the mistakes, many of those mistakes look silly to people and actually look ridiculous. And, and, and it could be viewed as uh, uh, irresponsible. How could you launch a product like that that is so pre, uh, immature, 
For example, when Tesla, uh, the first Tesla accident that killed the driver using autopilot, the Tesla saw a giant uh, white truck uh, and the reflections as sky, and it drove right into the truck. I would say probably no human driver would ever make that mistake. And people are shocked and um, angry that how could Tesla launch such a ridiculous product? But if you look at the track record of autopilot, it's actually driven safer than people in terms of total fatalities. But when it makes a mistake, it's a ridiculous, unforgivable mistake. Wow. That I think is the dilemma we'll be facing. Wow, that's, that, that, is, uh, that is fascinating. That, that, is, that is fascinating. Um, you've talked about kind of the, the, and the book talks about this in various places that, you know, and especially in the chapter on plenitude. So AI is able to kind of reduce the amount of time we need to do things. Things are able to be produced less expensively, so they're more broadly distributed. Money becomes less, less important. Uh, two questions on that. One is China is confronting um, a demographic challenge, which we talk about a lot at the, at the National Committee. Its workforce has already peaked. It's reducing its population, is on the verge of peaking. Is AI going to solve that problem for China? Uh, the problem of population not growing or yeah. the population of yeah. retraining? Yeah. Of population not growing. You know, yeah, generally is... population not growing would lead to reductions in GDP. That population growth is generally one of the ways right. that GDP will grow. Right, right. Uh, I'm probably somewhat contrarian on this view, so I'll answer it, but I would say many people would disagree with me. Uh, I feel with um, uh, AI and robotics taking over so much routine work, countries that grow too much in population may not see the historical co uh, correlation with um, um, GDP growth anymore. And uh, in, in that case, uh, countries like India may be facing more of a challenge than countries like China in terms of the population growth. Uh, there are obviously a lot of smart people who uh, disagree on that. So we'll have to see how it plays out. In my opinion, um, if we believe AI over the next 20 years will displace 50% of human, root, human work, which is routine. Um, and that means there, there will be a large job rotation, huge issue with uh, redistributing income to the people who lost their jobs and a big problem in terms of retraining people for skills that are not easily replaced by AI and the individual is capable of tr being trained and learning that new skill. Uh, I think that is a, uh, a set of challenges I feel would be of uh, highest priority. Uh, we're seeing the very beginnings of that, not enough sign to worry any uh, governments or politicians yet, but I think it, it may get worse, especially as COVID um, uh, is, is uh, we get out of COVID, yet co companies may not be hiring people back uh, and maybe using automation. Uh, we might see a, a, a jump, but, but that's something I'm, I, believe, I believe will happen one day, and, uh, but we, we have to see the data to, to, uh, to validate that. Yeah. Certainly in the healthcare sector, we're using much more robotics <laughs> Uh, much more tele, you know, telemedicine that we've seen a shift, which I would have thought probably would have taken 20 years has occurred in 18 yeah. months. And, and there's no yeah. question it will also reduce, reduce employment. And in, in, um, in your chapter in plenitude, you talk about the need to retrain people, mm -hmm. right. you know, and, and government taking over that responsibility. The, um, you have this wonder also in plenitude, you talk about moolah, um, which uh -huh. is you know, the new money, which you, you collect by doing good deeds. Um, so two questions. One, does this kind of, does this in your mind stem from China's social credit system that is beginning to take hold in China? You know, that people, if they don't visit their parents, they, they lose credit. You know, if they jaywalk, they lose credit. But if they do good things for society, they gain credit. So is that related? And then the second kind of subsidiary question is, 
Is China's central bank digital currency some step in that direction, making all current, you know, getting rid of paper money? Uh, actually, those were not my inspirations. Uh, the the social credit system and the uh, central bank system, uh, but clear the the reason I decided to put that in the story is a very speculative direction. Of course, I I can't. Uh, Prove that is the direction we must go. It's more motivated by my belief that work for economic gains will uh, become more diminished. That is, we if we only had human jobs and professions for 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 work that will have an economic benefit to the society, we won't have enough jobs for everyone. Because AI will have taken over so much of it, uh, and and yet, if we think about what humans can do that AI cannot do, uh, obviously there's creativity. There's the you know, your job, my job, the CEO's job, M&A experts' job, scientists' job. Yes, there are those, but it's a small percentage. What is the large number of existing um, uh, lower middle class people going to do? when AI takes over all the routine job. So my thoughts that I began to express in AI superpowers that went into AI uh, 2041 is that uh, it is really service jobs that will not be replaceable by AI because they're human connection required because as, as everything becomes cheaper, people won't want to pay a premium for services, for a wonderful masseuse, for a great concierge, uh, for uh, for uh, tour guide and for healthcare services, and some of the healthcare services are not necessarily you know economic requirements. That is, an elderly care, elderly companion, uh, someone to take an elderly person to see a doctor, or foster home volunteer, hotline volunteer, uh, uh, someone who decides to um, to homeschool their children. These are all activities worth compensating people for, worth calling jobs, if you will, yet they don't really contribute much economically to society, but it gives people something meaningful to do. Um, it, these jobs are create positive social energy. It gives people a sense of satisfaction, having help seeing a smile from the elderly person they uh, spend time with. So there should be encouragement of this type of a human to human connection service type of services. So it was with this thought in mind that I thought um, instead of just encouraging people with a pay, they should be encouraged with some kind of a, a digital system that measures their contribution socially. So it was inspired by this, not, not the other factors. The, um, you know, it's interesting, I mean, some, you know, you say tour guides. I would say tour guides have to some degree already been replaced by a very simplified AI. So once upon a time, you need somebody to walk you around a museum. Now you simply put on earphones. And when you get to a particular place, the museum talks to you with what the tour guide formally said. Yeah. A very yeah. simple kind of AI. Yes, yes, but I think there's also room for a storyteller. If tour guide, tour guides should compete against that by being a brilliant storyteller, incorporating personal experience, fun anecdotes, things that are very personal and connect human to human. Um, there are still many of those tour, tour guides. I hope, I hope that could emerge to be uh, uh, sufficiently competitive. Also, you know, like a chef and a waiter, you know, we're investors uh, in China and there are a lot of companies coming up with robotic chefs and robotic uh, waiters and waitresses. And, and they're very effective, very cost effective. I think they will populate uh, to middle or lower end restaurants, you know, maybe like equivalent of Denny's in the US, you know, higher than McDonald's, but, but not, a, not a high end restaurant. But then that uh, I think accentuates the value when you go to a, a, a top restaurant, a, a Michelin restaurant, or maybe something less expensive, but still a fancy restaurant, uh, people will treasure even more the human service that's provided. So I think a lot of things will become multi-tiered. At the top will be the human 
uh, uh, service providers, curators, and people who deliver an amazing experience. And on the bottom will be uh, robots taking over the jobs. Uh-huh. I, I, I mean, it, it was a Lian Dian, it was a, uh, whatever Lian Dian is, it was a, a chain restaurant, but it was uh-huh. a chain Huoguo restaurant, your hot pot. And, I did um, love, yeah. and the, the robot came out, mm-hmm. this is pre-pandemic, <clears throat> and on its gear, you, you pressed what you wanted, and you yep. made your order, and then I expected the robot to bring the food out, but then a person brought the food out. So their AI was rather imperfect. Um, I mean, they, their robotics were right. just imperfect. You know, somebody, th- this gets to a question someone has asked, which is Liu Huaifa uh, from Beijing Language and Culture University. Uh, she thinks AI has its limits. For example, this is an interesting question. No matter how advanced AI technologies are, Professional translators and interpreters are still needed. Are we exaggerating the potential of AI by thinking that those jobs will get eliminated? Uh, the highest, gen- well, it goes back to the concierge and uh, the chef and the waiter. Uh, the same will happen with translators. Uh, the very high-end super, you know, if you translate for the president of a country or a president of a large Fortune 500 company, that is unlikely to be taken over by AI in the next 20 years because mistakes are extremely costly and there's a lot of subtlety. But business translation is rapidly being taken over by uh, semi-autonomous methods. I'll describe to you what is happening today. So we're investors in two companies. Uh, one called the Transhen, the other is called Langboat. And the two of them are working together. One is on a domain-specific high-quality text translation. The other is building a tool for translators. And the tool still has people using the tools. The people has the final say on what the translation looks like. But the AI does the first pass. And we're seeing AI improving very rapidly by 12% just in the last year. So that means 12% more of the translations don't have to be touched by the human anymore. And and we're seeing the overall productivity of the translator pool go up significantly, costs come down significantly because AI is doing more and more and more. Of course, the translators feel very empowered because AI is doing all the routine basic translation and the translator gets to tweak a little here and a little there. But what they don't see is the amount of reliance uh, on their human capacity is coming down over time. So we're actually in a very strange uh, time in history right now, because uh, I I know you as uh, the person who asked the question is is probably looking at the boom in the human translator space. I, I do believe in the past year, there are more people who get paid by more translator jobs as a result of more people using machine translation and not happy with the result and hiring a human to fix it. But this boom is a transient um, uh, thing. And as technology gets better with more data, the human reliance and requirement for human will come down. It's very much similar to uh, uh, bank tellers and ATMs. When when ATMs first came out, it drew people to the bank, they had to hire more uh, tellers. But eventually ATM became more and more powerful and tellers had to be moved to other jobs. So I would be quite confident that in a 10 to 20 year horizon, the number of professional translators will come down significantly, even dramatically. And the ones who remain are going to be the ones who are so good at it. They're like instantaneous voice translator or extremely high quality, no mistake tolerated kind of uh, jobs. Why is your former employers uh, translation function so mediocre. <laughs> it, it, uh, I, I, I'm, yeah. I'm shocked when I use it. I, I'm just shocked at, at because they should have data, more data than they possibly can analyze to make their mm-hmm. translations more accurate. What's going on? <clears throat> uh, I don't think they put the state of the art. The state of the art requires um, a lot more compute power and the number of users who used it. And also they make no money from the product. So they put a uh, a older version. But even then, if you look at the quality of the product five years ago, 10 years ago, there's been big advances. And also in the last, just in the last two years, there's a huge um, advancement, almost a breakthrough. 
uh, called um, self-supervised learning. And, and if you, you probably know it by GPT-3 or Transformer or BIRDS, these are the uh, technologies coming out of <clears throat> uh, Google, Microsoft, and uh, OpenAI that allows uh, essentially you know, trillions of data to be used for training a super smart natural language engine on top of which you can build machine translation and, and, and also uh, targeted for specific industries like electronics or uh, finance. And we are seeing big jump in performance. So uh, you, I, I would uh, be very comfortable predicting that in five years, uh, we will have speech recognition dramatically better than they work today, even though they're pretty good already. We'll have machine translation, uh, both uh, text to text, but also a simultaneous voice to voice translation yeah. so that you can go to a foreign country with ear sets and um, have a decent conversation with someone with some mistakes, but, but decent um, fluid wow. conversation. It will, jump, it will jump in the next five years. That will be amazing. I mean, certainly the voice recognition is already, you know, 99.99%. When I give speeches in China, hmm, yeah. you know, I, I see on the sides, they have, you know, a transcription going on if people don't right. understand my Chinese or my English. So <laughs> it, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's very distracting for the speaker. Um, <laughs> yes. I mean, our jobs, you know, partly because I come from Wall Street and started out doing credit analysis. Is that kind of job just gonna disappear? It's all gonna be done by AI because AI is gonna be better at judging the borrower with all the data that they have and all the data that they're able to sweep in through Ali and Tencent and in the future for the digital currency, that those jobs are gonna basically disappear. Uh, yes, I think all routine jobs are going to be gone. And there are some jobs that you would not think are routine. Uh, they're going to be gone too. Uh, for example, a radiologist's job, one would not think that's routine. A translator's job, one would not think that's routine. But it's all about data, quant uh, huge amounts of data uh, fed through to a mathematical quantitative algorithm. And uh, the improvements are just very dramatic. And the way that jobs will be displaced will be first AI will come out as an assistant, radiologist assistant, translator's assistant, doctor's assistant for diagnosis. Then they will become quite good doing more decisions autonomously. Then one day will come when the professional will feel, wow, the AI is better than me. I don't dare override its decision anymore. And then it's going to flip and take over more jobs. I, I think people really have to be uh, prepared for that. We are seeing the writing on the wall. As you were describing speech recognition, I worked on speech recognition uh, in the 80s and it barely worked back then. If you draw a curve of improvement, it goes like this, especially it actually goes like this in the more last 10 years, big jump due to deep learning and its descendants. So we really uh, should become prepared four domains in which AI will emerge as an assistant and actually evolve into the main um, uh, worker. The chapter on uh, that you call golden elephant kind of highlights potential inequalities in the use of AI, you know, with, I mean, it's so, it's so smart. It's so interesting because it, you know, it talks about insurance and how if you do one thing, you're, you know, given you've consented to kind of be followed and have everything you do be monitored, your insurance premium would jump up or drop down, which was, which was, I think, just wonderfully interesting. I was going to ask my insurance, my friends who run insurance <laughs> companies, if they're moving in that direction. Um, but my question is, how do we deal with the systemic inequality, the potential systemic inequality in AI? Uh, yeah, today I think the inequality in AI is quite a serious matter and people have to work on it. Uh, fortunately, I think we can make a big improvement in the short term. Uh, we've probably read about uh, you know, a large American company trained its HR AI using more men than a lot more men than women, and it ended up being very biased against um, uh, letting women pass the screen. And that kind of uh, error in the imbalance of data that you expose 
to an AI system, so much of one gender or race or whatever, and so little of others will cause AI systems to be biased. And those can be caught by automatic tools that will alert the AI programmer of saying, you should not launch this because it will have this kind of an impact. So I think we can catch you know, 80, 90% of the most obvious uh, of, of the problems because they're pretty obvious mistakes. We should also train AI engineers to be conscientious that they're not just trying to build a tool, make money, but rather they're, they're going to impact people's lives. So I think we can keep that under control. But there are a lot of subtleties that are very hard. Uh, the Golden Elephant was particularly written that way. Uh, there you have a um, well-intended benevolent insurance company, meaning to help people reduce their in insurance premium, which ought to be correlated with them not getting sick as often. Seems like everybody wins, but yet still terrible things happen. So it is pointing out there are extreme cases and a lot more research needs to be done. We can capture the obvious cases and make it work much better, but the extreme cases require a lot more work. Uh, I would close on this question by saying, um, if we capture it, if we do a really good job on the big mistakes, I think we will reach a point that AI will be already less biased than people. Uh, we, we don't recognize how biased we are. Um, th think, think about a, um, some, a loan officer at the bank. If you ask them, well, why did you turn down that person's loan? You know, they'll usually give you a, 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 a legitimate reason, you know, insufficient income, uh, too new at the job or something, but buried in that person's um, a subconsciousness is a lot of bias and prejudice, uh, you know, uh, things like the person doesn't look trustworthy or I don't trust, you know, men or women or whatever. Um, that kind of thing does, does come through and AI will, we can do such a good job by honing the right data set, eliminating biases in the data as much as we can so that AI can and will do better than people. Another example with people is there were, there's a study in Israel that showed that judges were, gave harsher sentences uh, just before lunch, just because they were hungry. So it's not even caused by prejudice. They're just, I'm hungry, I'm gonna be mean. So, so I think AI can and will do better. And, and it just doesn't mean uh, we shouldn't work on it. We should work very hard on it to make AI as fair, unbiased as possible. But we should not look at it and say, well, it's so much worse than people because uh, you know, we're all people. We can um, think about, you know, are we really unbiased? I think we actually are quite poor and AI should be a blessing if we do a good job. Of course, the data will tell us whether mm. there's a correlation between potential bias and, and outcomes. And then yes. hopefully the person who's then creating you know, the programs can kind of get the, get the bias out of the, of the, uh, the AI. We, we can get a lot of it out. You can actually go further. If let's say uh, racial bias is your biggest concern, then just remove um, race out of the data. Uh, then it won't be pivoting on that column of saying, okay, or treat the Chinese worse and treat the you know Filipino better or something like that, uh, yeah. but 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 I would also caution that even if you take that one out, there are probably other ways to infer race by you know the la the surname and right. place they live. They live in Chinatown. They're probably Chinese. So uh, you you probably have to remove a fair amount of data to remove most of the inferable racial elements. But if that's really important to the AI you want to build. Well, then remove uh, remove all of that. Yeah, I want to make sure I get to some audience questions before we close. Um, Morgan Pierce from CSIS asks: Experts are predicting that AI will displace many blue-collar workers, as you said. Uh, what's the Chinese government doing to provide a safety net for those who are going to be impacted? Yeah, uh, we are not seeing much action by any government right now on this AI displacement issue, because I think most of the displacements are absorbed in the employment process. That is, you know, people lose their jobs, then they go on and find something else. So we haven't reached a point where large numbers of displacements are causing the government to have to step in. You know, on the, you know, on the US side, 
I think COVID has made uh, unemployment numbers not so dependable. So uh, despite efforts, you know, uh, you know, like Andrew Yang, he speaks up about the need for universal basic income due to AI displacement, but you know, 1% of the US listens to him. So he's getting some voice, but the government hasn't really seen it necessary to come up with any policies. I would say uh, China is not looking at the terrible unemployment number. And I would say, generally speaking, when governments are not seeing bad unemployment numbers, they're not likely to uh, proactively deal with this. Mm -hmm. um, Hugh Mo from his law firm asked, since China is the leading country in development and implementation of AI, what's the implication for the US and Europe in light of the open competition and potential conflict with China in the years ahead? Well, commercial AI is not really a conflict between countries. Uh, you know, Tencent, Alibaba, Google, Amazon can, can all be successful. Uh, they all have different products, different geographies. So I, I, I think on the commercial aspects, I would anticipate you, American companies to be really successful. Um, uh, probably more so in enterprise software space like C3 AI and uh, Pal Palantir and the like. Uh, Chinese companies will probably see more uh, uh, robots and automation because of the manufacturing prowess. Uh, and I think both countries will do well. Europe, I think, will not be able to emerge as a giant in AI, uh, partly because um, I think the EU wants to limit AI because of their concerns about personal data and, um, and their concerns about um, internet companies having too much power. And also EU is not really one language, one culture entity. So a AI company ha will have a harder time penetrate all of EU, whereas the Chinese or American companies would not have that problem. It's a cohesive um, single language, single culture, large market. So US China, Continue, will continue to be AI superpowers as I predicted in my uh, last book. And, and that's why Europe developed this GDPR, which is replete with problems and makes kind of development of AI and collection of data, which would enhance AI, extremely difficult. Yeah, I think GDPR is very well intentioned. It tries to protect things that we should try to protect, but it does so in ways that I think will impede the growth of AI. And, and to some extent, it will influence other countries, including US and China, to, to use GDPR as a reference and develop their own laws. But I think Europe will enforce it with the strictest requirement for compliance and thereby making it more difficult to start an AI company in, in Europe compared to US or China. Yeah, there's no question that Europe the amount, of, the amount of venture capital in Europe, the amount of kind of start, the number of startups in Europe is a tiny, tiny portion of the United States or China. Um, right. It, it's, and I guess that's how it's going to be. The Europeans are willing mm -hmm. to live with that result. It's interesting. Yes, I spoke once to a European regulator and I said, all these policies will cause AI to slow down in Europe. And his answer was, Dr. Lee, uh, that's not a side effect. That is what we intend. So that is a very different mentality than the uh, American or the Chinese view. Yeah. And is that, is, uh, now I'll let you get to your, your, your paying job in a, in a couple of minutes. The, um, <clears throat> is that, to, are the views, because you've spent your life in China and the United States, is, are the views of the individuals just different with respect to data and privacy that a, that a Chinese is willing to give up um, their data in exchange for potentially more personal safety or more advancements in science? Americans are less willing and Europeans the least willing. Is that a fair characterization? Uh it is a reasonable high level characterization, but the answer is much more nuanced. I think, you know, I think it's universal value that everybody wants to keep their personal data as private uh, as possible. But when it comes to two priorities uh, uh, needing to be prioritized, uh, I think Chinese and Europeans and Americans may prioritize them differently. Uh, an example is uh, co in COVID, right? Because of COVID, uh, 
everyone in China has a extremely accurate con contact tracing app that knows exactly where I've been and whether I've been in contact with anyone who may have contracted coronavirus. And as a result, uh, and also the use of you know, cameras, uh, facial recognition, along with temperature, and I go into a building, uh, it, uh, at least the building I work in, it knows who I am and what my temperature is. So if I have a fever, uh, I will be invited, I will be asked to go to a hospital uh, no, matter, no matter where I go. So that's the Chinese way. Um, you know, I think most Americans and certainly Europeans will find that uh, unpleasant and maybe unacceptable. Uh, but today, if you do a survey to China of saying Chinese people, given this is how China controls coronavirus, these are the things you give up, these are the things you gain, safety, lower deaths, et cetera. Uh, do you, would you rather go for a Chinese uh, approach or a European American approach? I would say almost 100% of Chinese people would say, I think it's a good trade-off that uh, our government and our companies do what they do. And, and conversely, I also think most Americans, Europeans would prefer to keep the systems they have rather than adopt the Chinese system. So, you know, while everyone wants personal private data, uh, the answer is nuanced and this is a case in point. Wow, fascinating. Kai-Fu, thank you so much to our listeners and viewers. This book will give you hours of pleasure and lots of education. So thank you so much for being a great friend of the National Committee and thank you for writing another great book. Okay. Thank great you, Steve. You. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.